Welcome to the Rusty George Podcast, where each month we'll be tackling issues from the Bible to culture, community, and of course, sports. Thank you for listening. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Rusty George Podcast. I am Josh, the online campus pastor at Real Life Church in Valencia, California. Sitting in front of me is Rusty George, the head pastor at Real Life, and Jim Beebe, who is a licensed uh, marriage and family therapist and longtime attender of Real Life, and uh, just an all-out awesome person. So <laughs> thanks for being with us. Thank you. And uh, so Jim, L- LMFT, we hear a lot about counseling and things like that. Tell us why, maybe just to introduce yourself, why you got into uh, counseling and licensed marriage and family therapy and um maybe how you do it, why you do it, and those types of things. So. Okay. So I went to Bible College, San Jose Bible College, and I'm a pastor, and then came down to Fuller Seminary to get my master's. And at Fuller, they have a great school of psychology and a right. uh, sort of program for marriage family counseling, which I knew nothing about back in the day. Yeah. I had no idea. And going through some challenges in my life, I really got drawn to that field, and it just seemed like a natural, natural extension. Mm-hmm. And I hated preaching. It was not my gift, you know, and I really was drawn to it, so it really became my passion, and luckily Fuller is in the early 80s. Fuller had a great program. I, I was able to get into that program and then graduated in 84 and been counseling ever since. Awesome. So I've been, been uh, counseling and doing the uh, marriage classes with Jane and I, my wife. Okay, very good. We teach the marriage class. That's, that's my pastoral side. And gotcha. the clinical side is the counseling. Now, were you guys married before you went to Fuller? Or? No, okay. no. So I married Jane in 1987. Gotcha. Yeah, so we've been doing this for 20-some years now. Yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So 20-some years, that's a lot of experience. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of couples that you've probably seen, a lot of marriages counseled. So yes. we hear so much about the bad news and the bad side of marriage. Um, and a lot of it's almost become taboo. It's like we come to expect to hear bad things about marriage. Um, and especially if you're single, it's kind of hard to have hope yeah. <laughs> that you're going to get married or have a healthy relationship yeah. in the future. Um, what does all this research and, and stuff tell us about kind of the state of marriage in America? I know you have some kind of alternative data to present to those kind of arguments. Yeah. So I think, Josh, your feeling is absolutely... The, probably the current feeling is a certain cynicism, if not fear, yeah. of it, right, and concern, and oh my gosh, flip the coin, you it, know, yeah. I'm I'm gonna fall on one side or the other, and you know, so there's a sense of of caution, if not outright cynicism about marriage. So, especially in the younger generation, this started probably about Gen X, you know, after the okay. boomers. Gen X is like 61 to 76, right. So that's the first generation that started to see their parents go through the the uptick of divorce. Mm-hmm. 1974, there were more marriages ended, the first time in U.S. history that more marriages ended in divorce than in death of a spouse. True. And so wow. now we start seeing this, right? So it seems like a huge shock. Yeah. And then we start hearing stats like the divorce rate's basically 50%. It yeah. gets widely quoted out there. Yeah. I was under that. I, that's what I heard in college, mm-hmm. you know. And, and really the truth is the problem that compiled or added to the fact of what media sort of presented mm-hmm. with the single life and with you know troubled marriages and uh, sexuality yeah. issues, all these things contribute to people now in our you know both the millennials and now you know this newest generation basically delaying marriage. So we mm-hmm. see first time marriages, age of first marriages, now has gone up. 
you know, as, as, as older, because people are cohabitating first. Mm -hmm. It's very, very common that people just assume they're going to go live together. Mm -hmm. The problem with it is a couple things. Is one is that we've been sold a, a belief in marriage in the statistics that has never been true. So the actual divorce rate probably is about 31 percent, the real no. divorce rate in America, yeah. Mm. And um, the reason is um, that the stats are based on the projection. So back in the 60s when they started now compiling divorce statistics, they said if, if divorce continues at the rate in the trajectory, then it will end up being about a 50 percent divorce rate. So mm -hmm. people bought into that, sort of assumed that was hmm. gospel truth, right. yeah. and it never was that high. Right, but that became the you know sort of this cultural belief, and really the the rate is probably much lower than that, and even lower if you have there's certain factors, you know, like you marry a little later in mm -hmm. life. So the younger you marry, the higher the risk for divorce. Okay, if you don't cohabitate first, if you cohabitate, that's actually a negative predictor for marriage, especially in the first seven years of marriage. Um, if you don't get your college education, so college is a stabilizer. It's also a financial. Uh, de-stressor mm -hmm. for hopefully most people kind of thing but if you get you know college uh, these things increase your and most importantly too that you have some shared religious values and practices mm. right so those four factors if people do that the divorce rate really is probably closer to 10 percent wow it mm. is very low you know and people just don't believe that huh. you know and and I think what happens is we on, along with media we see all these images of of the good life, which is the life we don't have. Mm -hmm. So if we're married, it's the non-married life, and this projection of all this stuff, so that it's very difficult then to really have this sense of the ideal of the permanence of marriage, mm -hmm. which was an ideal that was maintained up to probably the mid-60s. Mm -hmm. And we do not have that ideal anymore. Let me uh, ask you a question about the cohabitation, because I see that a lot, and it seems to be the common trend. We're going to you know, take our relationship to the next level and move in together. Right. Um, but I'm hearing the same things as well, as it's actually not helping people, uh, first of all, get married or stay married. It's actually increasing odds of divorce, and, and studies show that. Why do you think right. that is? So I think there's a couple things that happen. Number one, people that cohabitate generally have less healthy emotional boundaries. Okay. So one is a selection process. People that don't cohabitate tend to have more stability and independence, right? They're less mm. needy, right? So by selection, people cohabitating tend then to be drawn to that practice because right. of both neediness and necessity, right? Mm -hmm. We'll move in together, but it's cheaper for two than one, you know, this kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. uh, number two, when you cohabitate, it, it, it uh, establishes a certain um, temporary permanence to the relationship. Right. Good, yeah. So then once I'm in that relationship, once we start now investing in certain things, even though only 50% of cohabitating couples get married. Mm -hmm. So many people cohabitate, don't get married, but, but even the 50% is a high rate. Mm -hmm. And those, those 50%, they, often they're, they should have broke up, but they won't break up because they have a dog together now. Mm -hmm. Right, you know, they mm -hmm. bought. They don't know how to divide their refrigerator. They bought a refrigerator, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So they get married. They're literally invested. They're, they're invested, yeah. And so instead of practicing in, in a healthy way with healthy boundaries, now we have other things sort of propelling us past our healthy boundaries. It's very hard to make a sane, non-needy decision when I'm, you know, we're figuring out how to divide the dog. Right, right. It's very difficult. Right. So people stay in the relationship, and uh, all the predictors especially cohabitating before you're engaged. 
does not show engagement is changes it because by time of engagement, people are already in a committed relationship, right? But right. Cohabitating before that really show really high risk for all sorts of behaviors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow, that's very interesting. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about relationships in general. Um, you've already mentioned the social media thing. We, we we're such voyeurs to everybody else's life. We're yeah. watching everybody else's highlight reel. What we can't see are all the dirty dishes and the crying kids and right. you know the arguments that they just had. All we see is this idea of perfection. Then we watch television and we see the idea of perfection either in you know the single life or the married life if we're single, whatever it is. All these voices in our heads. Um, how can a a married couple live in this culture and drown out some of those voices? Uh, give us some simple ways that we can do this a little bit better. Yeah. So it's probably always been somewhat true, right? That it's easy to be discontent with what you have because what you don't have, you see the outside, right? You, so when you're comparing your insides to their outsides, mm -hmm. right? So that's always a trouble, right? <laughs> that's a good yeah, How do you yeah. do that, right? So I'm sure it's there. But with the television coming, with now the exposure to so much more that's immediate and the internet has just mm -hmm. basically put this on meth. Mm -hmm. you know, all this exposure to these lives that we never had right. exposure to before, right. right? We never could you know, look inside. Now we see all sorts of things. And of course, the Facebook, you know, being the you know, number one of a certain presentation, it is really difficult to not have a sense of envy or a discontent, right? right? So they say, you know, contentment is wanting what you have. Right, so part of the discipline is me learning how to set bar mount uh, boundaries and create margin in my life, so I'm not exposing myself to basically violate or, or really respect my own difficulty with not being able to embrace what I have, mm -hmm. to love what I have and live in what I have. So my my job in my marriage is to only need Jane to be Jane, right? If I need Jane to be Sally or Joyce or Susie, I'm in trouble mm -hmm. because I get Jane. Right? <laughs> so what my job is, is to say, I only need Jane to be Jane, including, you know, frustrating Jane. And, and of course, I really want Jane to do this with Jim. All right? I like that, you know. If all right. she needs is me to be me. That's, that's, the, that's the definition of contentment, right? That's good. Well, we have to respect the fact that we are human beings, mm -hmm. right? And so we're drawn to novelty. And so other things that are presented to us that we're not doing as novel as a very strong, it, it activates our neurotransmitters, our dopamine gets going. Mm -hmm. And Jane does not hit my dopamine in the same way that that does out there. Right. So I've got to find ways to filter, you know, the phone jail kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. I have got to find a way to manage that. It's very difficult in our culture. Because mm -hmm. we have, we, we're drinking off the fire hose mm -hmm. in Southern California as much as anywhere. Yeah. Um, okay, well, this is uh, this is very helpful, and I know that you deal with a lot of couples. And I would just say, as a, a shameless plug for you, um, if you are listening to this and need to talk to somebody, Jim and his associates are just a fantastic office. We've referred many people there, and always had glowing uh, reports. Um, can you just give a phone number real quick of how they can oh. contact you? So yeah, my number is eight one eight seven eight seven. One, two, four, two. All right. So that's uh, Abundant Life Counseling. Uh, I want to ask you um, about, and we've talked about this before, typically we say or we assume that the reason people have trouble in their relationships or they get divorced, it's typically always been told to me as the big three, which is money, sex, or in-laws. 
those right. become the problems. Uh, those are things we argue about, but you say there's actually something below that that's the bigger issue. And you hinted at this just a little bit ago, but you talk about those two particular things yeah. that we need to deal with. So, so we have topics, right, and, and you're, you're right, like the top three, let's say, when they mm -hmm. say uh, people, what they argue about. Number one, when people argue about these things, often they're arguing about intrinsic, irresolvable issues, mm -hmm. right? So let's say money. So you've got one person who's very conservative and who's thrifty and cautious and a little more uh, anxious, so they really want to save. The other person's more carefree and expansive and comfortable, therefore, you know, to spend a little more money on vacation is not a big deal, right? mm -hmm. okay? That's going to be an intrinsic conflict between them that you can extrapolate to all sorts of things, mm -hmm. right? So that issue, when they look at these issues of ongoing conflict or disagreement in couples, they've concluded that 69% of those issues that we have ongoing conflict about are irresolvable issues. Mm. We'll never solve them, right? 69%. 69% wow. are never resolvable because you're not going to solve them by solving them. Mm. Okay, and I'll tell you how you do, but you don't solve by so you don't solve by getting some system so that it works perfectly that we're on the same page about money, mm. because it's because it's not about money. It's about how I deal with life. It's about my anxiety. It's about how I find joy. It's it's whether I'm I'm uh, more giving or more conservative, right? It, these are really like my skins. I tell someone to change their skin in a way, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So your spouse, our wives, are just who they are. We are who we are. So Jane and I have issues that are just, you know, we're not perfectly matched. And those are irresolvable, most of mm -hmm. us, right? Okay. So what, of course, most couples do is they those things, though, the friction points, and those start to bleed into the rest of their life, right? Mm -hmm. They become frustrations, right? Can't you put your stuff away? You know, this is where the toothpaste mm -hmm. gap, right? Yep. This is where everything starts to mean everything because someone's really sort of orderly and wants everything in this place, and the other person's like, wow, give me a break, you know, I just sort of enjoy life and I don't need to be so, you know, neurotic. Right. <laughs> right. So the toothpaste or the toilet seat kind of stuff. But underneath this is, is issues of who they are as people, mm -hmm. right? This is, this is why it's irresolvable. It's themselves and who their personality is. So what I was mentioning, I think I've told you before, Rusty, is really what it comes to underneath all this is a couple things. Number one is ownership. Mm -hmm. People come into marriage, and their, their marriage triggers you. Those, these things that hit you, my marriage, whether something's put out or you know, put away or not, I want everything in its place, you know, and that, that's going to trigger me. And it's easy for me to think that the trigger is my problem. Right? Mm. So can we solve that? Can you please, you know, when you when you open the cabinet, close the cabinet door, right. you know, this kind of stuff. Right. You know, or for Jane it'd be Jim when you can you put the dish in the dishwasher <laughs> this way, right? <laughs> you know, right? So these triggers are all there, right? They're always out there. Right? And so the, the difficulty is I tend to mistake the trigger for the button. Right? Mm -hmm. So when Jesus said, look at the log in your own eye, mm -hmm. before you look at the speck in your spouse's eye, I think he meant, look at the log in your own eye. I think what he meant, look right. at yourself first, right? So what you, what it's very difficult to do, because I assume the trigger is my problem, really the button is my problem. Mm. You know, they say, you know, if you hit a glass of water and water comes out, okay, why did water come out? Because water was in the glass, right? right? What comes out of you when you're hit and triggered and all this stuff is what's in you. Right. Anxiety, fear, control, uh, neediness, whatever your stuff is, right? So the, a huge mm. movement is for people, it's very difficult for people to sort of step back from it and take ownership. To realize whatever I think, feel, say, and do is my responsibility. Mm. Okay. So my rule is, no matter what my spouse does, 
She could be kicking back the 12-pack every night. <laughs> she could be throwing the remote control, whatever it is. No matter, I'm still responsible for what I think, feel, say, and do. That's ownership. If I don't do that, the, the, result, the consequence is you're my problem. And so if Jane's my problem, mm-hmm. then Jane's my solution, right? Well, good luck with that because people, it's our people, they're who they are, right? Right. So if I'm my problem, then I'm my solution, which mm-hmm. is a struggle. You know, I got to then work on myself, right? It's, marriage is here to reveal you. It's, it's intimacy that's going to reveal you. Mm-hmm. And so marriage is here to help you grow. You know, they say marriage is to make you holy and not happy. Well, it can do both, mm-hmm. <laughs> really. But really that holy side is it's a, it's a lesson in character formation, right? So number one is acceptance, I mean, mm-hmm. of, of uh, ownership. Right. Number two is the acceptance. And, and acceptance is this, radically allowing and accepting, positively accepting your spouse for who they are. The rule has to be they get to be who they are, okay? Because if the rule is they've got to not be who they are, even if they try not to be who they are, they won't do it, mm. right? They can say, okay, you say, boy, it really would help me, honey, if you could um, make sure, you know, when you go downstairs, take stuff with you because it belongs downstairs. And my wife will say, sure. Fine. Oh, it means that's great. And she'll do it twice. <laughs> and then Jane's thinking about something else, and she walks past the pile, and she goes downstairs, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And by the way, I like that Jane is less neurotic than me. I like that she's less uptight than me, mm-hmm. except when she doesn't take her stuff downstairs. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so I've got to work at saying, it's not about Jane being different. It's not about getting Jane to take this stuff down. That's not my solution. Mm-hmm. Okay. The solution's inside here. Right? Mm. This is the kingdom is within. Right. So I've got to work on me and inside of me, and mm-hmm. I've got to practice acceptance towards her. Mm-hmm. You, it, you think about it. That acceptance is incredibly powerful. Mm. Acceptance is the basis that we build intimacy, right? If, if I truly accept my spouse who they are, all of it, I mean, and parts of it, is it parts of Jane, and of course, like Jane and me, of course, our spouses of, our, of us, that, that we wish we could change. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. But I still have to accept those parts because that'll be an ongoing journey. We're going to go to our grave. What Paul talks about in Romans of you know, I do that which I should not do. We're going to go to our grave with some of these character formation issues. Right. Mm-hmm. We, marriage is a place to embody acceptance of that journey. Mm-hmm. Right. Now on that, if you can get that, and that's a big if, but that's a huge thing. That underlies everything. Therefore, mm-hmm. sex, money, in-laws, parenting, uh, organization, chores, all those things now change how we talk and interact and deal with it. Right. There's a way more flexibility than rigidity when we get mm-hmm. to those places. Right. Yeah. Ownership and acceptance. Awesome. Yeah. And surrendering the remote control. Yeah. 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 That's right. And it's, and it's really a one day at a time right. reminder and practice of that, right? With hopefully a whole bunch of humor and dialogue. Right. right? It's sort of like you show me yours, I'll show you mine. Yeah. Right? So the best marriages have this sense of acceptance that engenders openness. Right. Right. This is what good friends give us. If you're with your friend and your friend's always criticizing you and saying, come on, please, can you do this and do that? And you're going to stop hanging with them. Right. I'm just telling you, that's not going to be your close friend. Well, right. we want our spouse to be our romantic friend. So the, right. the, the, what lubricates that relationship is acceptance, right. ownership, which builds trust. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's hmm. so good. Okay. Uh, final thoughts. Anything that you would recommend to, um, let's just start with, Couples who are dating, okay? okay? So we'll deal with couples who are dating, uh, young marrieds, and then married with kids, empty nesters. So four groups, <laughs> okay? Okay. So okay. Uh, just one recommendation for each group of how to make their relationship better. 
couple that are dating. Number one, go slow down and don't have sex. Okay. Don't have sex. And don't have sex because sex is a drug. You're already on drugs and it's called infatuation mm -hmm. and all the neurotransmitters that go on with that. Then you throw sex and sex is incredibly bonding. You need to keep your boundaries so you can make a wise decision. There's right. very few things you gotta get right in life. Yeah. Very few, and this is one of them. Yeah. And so slowing down and trying to keep your boundaries as a, as a way of having wisdom, right? Right. We, we jump into a relationship. The average, they say the average is three days before people have sex. Mm. That's the average. And that's called job security for me. <laughs> that's right. That is insanity. <laughs> it is insanity, right? right? So right. even if they don't buy the moral of it, buy the, the wisdom of it. Right. You know, of just taking, of, of being able to slow down. And this is going contrary to our culture. Three right. dates is out there. I mean, that's what we're throwing, right? Right. I remember reading something about a stat about the, the number of, uh, on TV, of sexual interactions and on any one night, it was like 47 of them or something like that. Right. And two of them were with a married couple and one of them was a negative portrayal. Oh, yeah. Right? Right. This is what we're getting, you know. So right. dating couples, slow down, um, make time to try to understand and know each other, let yourself calm down. Right. Don't make physical or emotional commitments before it's time. I always tell people somewhere between 12 and 18 months. Mm -hmm. Depending on how old you are. If you're mm -hmm. 16, it's not right. the same. But in your 20s. <laughs> You need 12 months just to get off the, the ride of infatuation, you know, 18 months. These people that date seven years, come on. Yeah, you know. that's right. <laughs> you know enough to know enough, right? <laughs> They're quasi-married, you know. Yeah, that's right. Okay, what's the second group? Newly uh, married? And, well, I would back up and add one thing to the dating, and that is get to know their parents. Yeah, yeah. Because uh -huh. as much as we hate to admit it, we become our parents. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, that worked out well for me, not so well for my wife. So, <laughs> Uh, okay, so yeah, the second group is newly married. Josh, you've been married how long now? Uh, a little over a year. A little over a so, year. All right. What would you speak tell Josh? as though you were speaking to me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, if if you it's adjustments generally those early adjustments, but most times people are relatively positively happy, newly married, sort of fun and exciting. And if you're can, although people getting married in their thirties now, it's hard for them to do this. But if you can wait on children. For two to three, four years, that is really nice to have that time just to really build that sort of practice together. Because children are wonderful, mm -hmm. but children are the single highest predictor of marital distress. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if you can delay that a little bit, get your sort of you know mm -hmm. land legs back under you, very very good, right? So these good. this practice of, and and going into children, you already are practicing keeping boundaries, prioritizing your relationship, keep your friendship alive. Basically, a good marriage right. is a good friendship. Yeah. Okay, so then we'll just fast forward into married with kids. So that's especially early married with kids. So we got two risk places. We have first time parents. Okay. So the birth of the first child is the predictor of distress for 70% of couples. They go hmm. on a sort of a difficult journey. Okay, and big part is because they're tired. Yeah. And all of a sudden now, the couple that could juggle three balls can't juggle eight balls. Yeah. And this kid is crying and they right. don't, they, they're not sleeping through the night and blah, right. blah. So learning how during that, and well, also what's happened, we've lost our social fabric, so we don't have grandma around anymore, because right. grandma lives in Ohio, Yeah, right. right? You know, we don't have this network that used to be sort of already entrenched. So with early childhood stuff, and I know this is a woman's world for this, but sleep schedules and being able to, you know, have times of just settling down to this new stress and this mm -hmm. new intensity of all this, you know, uh, right. stuff going on, right? 
and really trying to make sure you prioritize your marriage over your parenting. It's mm -hmm. very, very difficult because mm -hmm. kids are so cute and fun and they're emotionally bonding. Mm. You know, so women especially are bonding with their children by all that physical contact. Their body is designed to bond with this child. It's very powerful. Mm. And they are more bonded with their child than they are with their spouse, with yeah. their husband. Right. Right? So that early parenting stuff is important. The second one for mm. with kids is adolescence. Mm -hmm. the, the, if first time child, first child is the highest predictor of distress, families with adolescents are the actually most distressed. Okay, and what it means is the, the child, you know, first-time child will have the largest drop of, of contentment just because it's all that early stress. But the, the adolescent is the diff most difficult because adolescents are like little terrorists. They're like blowing themselves up every mm -hmm. three days. Right. Assault, you know? <laughs> so the, that period of time is very important that couples have mm -hmm. other couples to share with that are dealing with a 15-year-old, uh, you know, a morose, mm -hmm. frustrated 15-year-old or a you know, an incredibly emotional 14-year-old girl or a kid who's doing all sorts of things. Kids do go sideways, right? Right. It's really important that we try to keep our support for each other and not get critical of each other in that parenting. It's so mm -hmm. easy to do because one parent usually is having more trouble with the kid than the other parent, so it's easy then to be at battles with each other. Mm -hmm. We've got to keep that management of each other, mm -hmm. you know, support for each other. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, last one then, and that's the empty nester, yeah. which is where you are that's, right that's now. That's us. That's <laughs> us. Yeah. So empty nester can be great. Uh, I always tell people the golden years are not, you know, when you're 75 or 80. You know, right. those that the old old years are not golden years. It's the young old years. Right. Where you you've lost uh, some of that responsibility with kids. Although 40 percent of millennials live with their parents. By the right. way, right. Right. I still have a 23 year old that's <laughs> finding his way. You know. <laughs> so. Um, but we forty percent do, but th but in general they're you know they're not taking so much you know requiring responsibility or interaction. Okay, uh, there is a little drop in empty nest in the retirement uh, phase. Mm -hmm. A little bit of drop because people now are shifting gears and trying to sort of find themselves a little bit too. Right. Okay, but it can be a wonderful time. This early empty nest can be a wonderful time of having some time, some financial freedom, and hopefully enough health to go have fun. Yeah. And so I tell people, man, go do it. Put it, put it on the schedule. You right. Know, start enjoying life. Don't wait till you're 70 or 75. Right. We don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. You know. Go. Mm -hmm. So this is a chance to really, if the best of couples, they could find, they really sort of find that, that fun and that mm -hmm. that uh, recreational friendship again. It's great to go do things. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jim. It's been yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thanks so much for listening today. If you have a moment, we'd love for you to go to iTunes and write a review and share this with your friends on social media and just by word of mouth. It's been great to have you here. We'll see you next month.